and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today we're going to try something completely different from what we've done before. We're going to invite you in. In fact, we've already invited you in to ask some questions. A few days ago, Sana sent out a note through LinkedIn, and he just went out to his network, and then I reshared it, and other people reshared it. Lots of people reshared it, and we just said, ask me anything. And what we're trying to find out is what you want to hear, and perhaps we have some wisdom on that, and perhaps we don't. So, Sonneth, what was the response like? How many questions did you get? The response was amazing. I got a couple of questions from the audience. And then I, I also have a few more questions that people are asking me outside of the, the AMA thread. So I compiled all of them into, into three different questions that we can tackle today. So let me start with the first one we got here. Our kids got diagnosed with an ultra-rare disorder. We had started a foundation. We don't have large amounts of funding right now, but we would give it our all to make an impact on this ultra-rare neglected disorder. How do we go about doing that? This is a, a common question that I get asked a lot in person, via email, on social media, in other places. I can remember you asking this question. That's very true. <laughs> I do remember myself asking this question, and I think we've talked about me asking this question to you in a, in a podcast episode, I think episode number one or two or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I have an answer to this question now. And um, as I've worked through this journey, my answer has, has changed, matured, gotten a little bit more hopeful in some direction, in some dimensions and, and less hopeful in other dimensions. So long story short, you go about doing this by A, raising awareness about your disease. The more humans with resources and power that understand about the disease, the more something will get will get done in the ecosystem. So the first step is raise awareness. The second step is enable science. The third step, obviously, is continue shepherding more people to, to getting to a treatment. It sounds super simple, but it's not. The, the mechanism that people use generally to execute these strategies is creating a nonprofit organization, raising some money, setting up a goal of say building a gene replacement therapy treatment, asking for $2 million and working very hard to getting there. That works great. There's a playbook for doing that. There are organizations like Global Genes, NARD, and many other people that have publi published such playbooks. In fact, in one of the papers that I've written, I, I have published my playbook of creating a new nonprofit and everything that you should be doing from setting up your scientific advisory board, creating running conferences and so on. And we can link those playbooks to the, to the show notes here. Do that as step one. If you don't already have that, have, have it done. Hopefully someone else has done this for you. And if they have, then it's better to work with them and join forces than, you know, creating your own. And hopefully that should get enough eyeballs on this problem and attention and raise awareness. Step two 
of enabling science is, is where you really want to get scientists involved. It comes down to having enough biomaterials like fibroblasts, mouse models, animal models that represent the disease that scientists can go play with and work with and really try to find treatments. The next part to that step is working on a drug development strategy. This could be small molecule drug development, this could be gene replacement therapy, enzyme replacement therapy. There are several different techniques of drug development that that is popular, that is successful in the industry, but you have to pick the one that would yield the most success for your disease, and more importantly, would add minimal risk to your execution. The risk portion is something that I can keep talking for for hours now because that is something that people neglect and I personally have neglected in this, this in the past. But it's very important to think about how risky your execution is depending on the, on the modality you're, you're choosing. And hopefully if you get the first two steps taken care of, it'll keep you busy for about two, two, two three years, but it will, will set, up, set up the right foundation for you to go forward from there. Yeah, I think and the raising awareness We've seen what other people have done. We've seen people like Luke Rosen raised awareness, you know, about KIF-1A, and that enabled his science. They, they got their mouse model out of that. It's a, it's a fantastic rare disease story. We've seen other groups raise awareness. We talked to Amber Freed last year. She went and talked to the scientists first, figured out what the price tag was. Now she has a target to raise her funds. And so that's where she's going. So there's different ways to, to take your three steps here and, and do it. But they're, they're fundamental to it. What else have you sort of learned? You were talking about you've matured it. So what, what do you think that maturation is? And what could you, if someone is just starting out, how do you talk to someone who needs to mature, but, but they need to mature? They have to go through that process. But they're starting out at that very, I guess, green area where they, they, they just don't know what they don't know yet. I think my maturity has given me an understanding of risk in the different drug development modalities that we can take. And, and that understanding, again, is specific to my son's disease, but then there are generalizable uh, dimensions of that understanding as well. For example, gene replacement therapy is amazing. Um, the idea is so simple that anyone can understand, right? You take the faulty gene and replace the good one. Well, that's how we fix cars. So, you know, why can't we fix humans that way? It turns out there are a lot of risks in the current execution of gene replacement therapy that makes it very difficult for diseases with five, 10 patients to, to successfully get to a clinic. The, the first obvious one that comes to my mind is dose determination. It's it's an art and a science to determine the dose, but there's no guarantee you will get it right. You need to have trial and errors before you find the right dose that works for patients. If you only have, say, five patients that you can tap into to, 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 to deliver the drug, you don't have many people to try different doses on. And since it's a one-time delivery, the, the five patients essentially are out of the question for the next round of, you know, trying out doses. And that essentially backs itself into a big category of risk. For me personally, the question is, should you be investing two to five million dollars on an effort that has a one-time shot on success and a very high probability of failure? It's a question that you have to answer on on, on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and I think that's part of the maturity too coming into it, someone would say, well, of course you're going to spend it because it's my kid. And then you say, wait, 
there's other things that I can do that will give me more possibility for success, more shots on goal, and not cost as much. I think that that's, that's actually a big part of maturing. So let's move to the next question here, which we've just talked about. So there is no foundation. You've got to get started. It's grassroots. Here's one for where I think the situation is different. And the question is, any treatment for kids with San Filippo syndrome? Can I get to access, can I get access to trials if it is happening? Yeah, this question came from Lalit Sitaraman. The answer is I don't think there's a there's a hard yes to this answer at this at this point, unfortunately. As I was doing some research, I came across the Cure San Filippo Foundation. That's CureSanFilippo.org. They have put together a roadmap that they published last July to get to therapies. And in the roadmap, they're talking about doing some basic science work to understand the disease pathology, identify natural history data and, and the family's outcomes uh, and come up with outcome measures. And then in parallel, develop different types of treatments using cell and gene therapies, small molecules, and so on, and then get to clinical trials. So at this point, looking at their website, it looks like there is no immediate treatment available. Like you can't just go to a pharmacy and buy a drug. But I'm they're probably closer to getting to treatments than most other people are, especially with respect to these rare diseases. I personally know the San Filippo syndrome has been very well known in the industry. I've heard several people talk about it, both from research in academia and the industry. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot of interest and drive behind it. So if you want to know more, I would recommend connecting with the folks at the Cure San Filippo Foundation. And there's several other contacts listed there on their website. They can definitely direct you to the right place. The other dimension of the question is, is can you get access to it? And that's a question that's, I guess, has to be answered once we know what therapies are available. Yeah, I think there's what therapies are available, where you're located, you know, what, what if you're in the U.S., it's under the FDA. If you're somewhere else in the world, um, you're going to be under the regulations there. And access to a clinical trial becomes different in different places. I also think that San Filippo syndrome is, is one of the ones that's an example where they've done a, a natural history study or they have one ongoing. And that would be very important to go and try to get a, be a part of if, if you're not already. Um, natural history studies during Rare Disease Week, I went to the FDA day, I went to the NIH day. Natural history studies are, are the keys that open up to these, not the ultra-rare, because you don't have anyone to do a natural history study on ultra-rare, but when you've got you know several thousand people to look at and you start looking at what are the patterns of disease, you can start to see if you can change those patterns of disease. And that's critical for getting scientists interested. It's critical for getting pharmaceutical companies interested in developing anything that comes out of the research. It's interesting because this is a question that's on the top of mind for everybody that gets diagnosed with rheumatism. The answer isn't, isn't always there. In the cases when the answer is a yes, there is a treatment, access becomes a big challenge. I've come across several cases of kids in India that have been diagnosed with SMA that would be completely eligible for Zolgensma, the gene therapy replacement, uh, gene therapy treatment for SMA, but cannot pay the $2.1 million price tag. Obviously, if you know anything about the Indian healthcare system, there's 
there is some insurance market there, but this is not a central like single player payer system. Even the insurance market is is incredibly fragmented, and and there are little controls to ensure payers do pay and cover for these sort of uh, rare diseases. And if you account for the currency conversion from US, US dollars to Indian rupees, it becomes insane. The amount of money that you would spend on one child for the SMA treatment is probably an ad- annual budget of most many of these insurance companies, at least the smaller ones. So from that context, kids that, that are born that have a disease that actually has a treatment are not able to get them. And I, I don't I don't know what's the solution to this problem. I've seen a lot of people do GoFundMe fundraisers, have contributed personally to a lot of them. But this is a big challenge that we have to overcome. It's a very low hanging fruit in my opinion. It's a- and that's you you picked like the Indian situation, which is like as you said, insane. There you just can't you can't even figure out how these insurance companies do it. But even in the US or in central payer com- countries like the UK, the same questions come up. How do you spend this much on one person? And and when you look in, when you're someone who's supposed to be looking at public health spending, they're they're using different kinds of equations, and and one person doesn't multiply well in that. So it's a it is a challenge, and I think it's. You know, the future of medicine, we shouldn't be talking about this. The future of medicine should be, can we find those treatments and get them to the people who need them and treat them? Somehow we've got to figure out that, that gap. We talked about risk a little bit ago around gene therapy, right? And the risk really comes into play only because you're spending two, 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 two to $5 million in building the treatment. Suppose you, you are spending $5,000 in creating a treatment that would be a one-shot on gold, well, that's not even a goal. That's that's bronze, right? Well, sure, we'll give it a shot. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's just five thousand dollars, right? We could go work an extra shift somewhere and get more money. And so, it's money that ultimately changes the risk-benefit equation. Figuring out how to solve that money problem is going to make access possible. Is going to, I think, hopefully change the risk-benefit equation for a lot of these ultra-rare disease diseases, where the the the, the economic upside doesn't exist for biotech companies to go invest in them. We don't have a solution. We can keep cribbing about it all day long. But I, 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 can't, I can't, for the life of my, figure out how to, how to solve this. It's not one of us who's going to solve it. It's, it's all of us somehow. And raising awareness of it. I mean, that's what I think we're doing here is raising awareness of this issue. So, there's one more question that we got in, which kind of turns it around a little bit, but it relates to this. Parenting is so hard, but raising a kid with a rare disease is harder. What can the community do to support parents of rare disease kids better? How do you both manage the emotional and mental toll that comes along with parenting? Is- yeah, uh, this question came from Vidya Srinivasan, who's, uh, who's a friend of ours. This is a very important question because people don't quite understand how much support you as a parent get from the society. If your kids turn three, they go to preschool. If they turn five, they go to school. And then they go to school for the next 10 years, and then they go to college, which means they are not at home 24-7, and they don't have to be in front of your eyes 
they can be alone they can be independent uh, they can choose the life they, they they'd love to uh, love to grow into right but on the flip side for rarities kids they are not independent a lot of them they have a lot of challenges they have to be in front of the the parents eyes or, or some guardians eyes simply to make sure they stay safe all the time they need medications they don't quite have access to school because many of them have special needs and they can't go to the same schools that other kids do it's just one example to show how much time and energy that that, that parents have to devote for raising a rarities kid there are a lot of other examples where the society has support structures built in you could go on a play date with another other family which means your kids get to play in the park and you just get to hang out there and relax and spend 2 hours or, or even half an hour looking at looking at the sky and doing nothing but there are no play dates for autistic kids because well these kids cannot really play by themselves so parents are basically play dates so there are a lot of things that are very simple small that you don't think about you take it for granted but that doesn't exist for autistic parents um, and i would categorize this as people with with medically fragile kids in general that that are are, are heavily dependent on the parents not just rare diseases here to answer your question um i would i would find ways to put these kids somehow um and give a break to their parents video call with my son and sing a song well he doesn't quite understand what's going on but he will pay attention to someone singing a song which means he's not going so someone is looking at him and making sure he's safe and engaging him for 15 minutes while we go fix up dinner there are many ways of solving this but i would find opportunities where you could give more time back to the parents i actually think so i'm i'm going to take the role of someone outside of your family right and and if i live next door to you i might be hesitant to even come to you and say hey how could i help because i don't have an answer because i'm asking a question right but how do, what do you, how do you take that if someone came up to you and said I know this has got to be hard. How can I help? How would you encourage people to do that for you? How would you encourage them just to ask the question? I It's a two-way street, and it's it's good that you you brought this perspective here because it's very true. My my neighbors for example wouldn't come and help me. Even my closest friends who want to help me are uh think they they are not capable of helping me. right and in to some degree they are not capable like to, for some tasks they are just not capable of the the two way street comes in where parents have to let go and allow others and accept help right while the help is not going to be as perfect as you can be you're not expecting that from them you're just expecting that your kids safe and occupied and and you get time off right it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes it's not a lot of time as long as the kid's kid is safe and you get the time back i think you should accept and, and take help on the other side or people that offer help must understand that this would be possibly one of the most weirdest things they have done in their life and i use the word weird because sometimes it can be hard sometimes it can be gross sometimes it can be painful sometimes it can be incredibly happy but the parents cannot guarantee the experience you're going to get it is dependent on the time of the day and what happens and you have to accept the fact that you're not in a disneyland that's very insightful and i think it points out you you called it weird but i think it actually for someone who does it 
it's also going to be fulfilling because if, if they can walk in your shoes a little bit, they're going to appreciate a little bit more and maybe ask that question again. I actually think, you know, if you went and as long as it wasn't life-threatening or anything that happened, you know, that, that you failed at keeping the child safe, you know, if they make a mess, if they get, if they throw up, okay, that happens with all kids. So it it's inconvenient, right? But it actually would be just such an emphasis of imagine if you didn't get that 15-minute power nap from parenting, you know, that you would have had to deal with this on top of everything else you were dealing with. I think people... The people who will step forward will be, they've got the hearts to say, I want to help somehow. And I mean, what a way to grow too. You know, it's, um, I think it, I've done a lot of work where I've gone in intentionally into places where people were poverty stricken or underserved in many ways, just to serve them. And, and it's the simple things that leave lasting memories. So it's very, uh, you know, I think it, there's an opening there. So what about the the other question, managing both the emotional and the mental toll that comes with parenting? Now I can I can see this from my daughter who's who's parenting a toddler as well. She has emotional and mental tolls all the time. And she's actually not as not nearly as challenged as your one child as This is a this is an important problem and before we we before I answer that question, I want to linger. I want to spend a little bit more time on the help topic. I I think this could be a whole podcast episode, uh, uh, if uh, in and of itself. Help is very hard to deliver for disease kids because there are a few things that are going to absolutely piss off people if you if you if you do, and 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 the list of those things are also a little bit dependent on the parents too. But I would say universally, you don't want to try and solve the parents' emotional stress when you're helping them. All you have to do is let them go, like let them be free. And people that look at the child and say, well, he's he's doing amazing. He's he's just like my kid who is now in who's now in this in the International Science Olympiad, where it'll really just come across as rude. And so you'd want to be respectful and understand that you can't really solve for the parents' emotional and mental physical uh, mental well-being. The best you can do is give them a break and let them solve it for themselves. And that basically means you don't have to comment on what's good. You don't have to comment on what's bad. Just be there and be available and and do the job that you're asked to do, like doing dishes, for example. If you're if you're asked to do dishes, do dishes and be happy about it and call it done. Just don't comment on anything else because you have no idea what people are going through. And that's the segue into how do you manage the emotional and physical mental toll that comes with parenting. There is just no silver bullet here. It is something that you have that parents have to accept and and deal with. And I think the first thing comes uh, the first step is acceptance. Is the acceptance of the situation that we are presented with and that it is different and that you don't have to compare yourself with others. And once the acceptance kicks in, then things become a lot easier. You, you do get into really deep stressful situations with with the kid being sick or, or something really bad happening or, or your family going through some troubles. But at, at the end of the day, you come back to your baseline and the baseline again is different from a typical child's baseline to your 
I think that the question was actually very well worded because it's how do you manage it? It's, you manage it. You attend to it. You don't solve it. Right? You, you, you manage it. Good day, bad day. You know, what, what do I do? How do I, how do I take advantage of the good and, and mitigate the bad? So it's, I think it's, I think this is one of the things talking to you is always opens my eyes to just how little I know about this. And I think that that's, you know, just our experiences, right? I know other things, but, but this I don't. And I think that being able to, to let people know it in this way, you know, kind of, it's not like we're, we're breathing down their necks. We're just, we're just coming through their headphones and saying, yeah, this is, this is what it's like to carry this with your child and, and, and love them and, and want everything for them at the same time, right? It's a, just a, a different space than most people are in. You know, this was actually, this worked out really well, asking, having people ask you anything. And if you listeners enjoyed this as much as I did, and I think Sonneth did, the only way we can really make this happen is if you guys get involved. So if we put out a plea for an ask, ask me anything again, please, please, please send in your questions. And even before that, if you're enjoying the, the podcast and you really like Raising Rare and you're one of our fans out there, go ahead and follow us on your podcast platform and send in a review. Give us some stars. You know, the more we hear from you, the more we can talk about things that will interest you. And we've got some exciting things coming up. I can't even talk about them. They're so exciting. But it'll be interesting in the next few weeks what, what we're talking about. But we want to hear from you. Any last words, Sonneth? You said it all. Ask me anything. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.